y'all, and welcome to today's podcast episode. Today, I'm joined by UC Berkeley Haas Professor Torsor Koti. Professor Koti is the founder of a tech ed startup called Market Games. This game allows a student to experience what an entrepreneur or a business leader experiences, making it easier to understand the core functions of a business and how these functions work together to achieve business goals. In addition, Torso has past experiences working in private equity and investment banking. He was the former assistant vice president at Credit Suisse UK and a former investment professional at Manocap Private Equity Fund. In today's discussion, Torso and I talk about private equity, capital markets, market efficiency, and the foundations of accounting. Enjoy. Torso, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me, Logan. So I kind of want to get a little bit of more background information about you. So could you kind of tell us when did your love for finance, you know, start to develop? I would say that it probably started, it was my senior year in undergrad and uh, my undergraduate major was accounting, but I took my finance one-on-one course, which is what I'm required my senior year. Um, actually, no, my junior year, it was junior year. And I really found it interesting learning about the time value of money and discounted cash flows. Um, and then during that time period, I also got an internship at PricewaterhouseCoopers in New York in the capital markets group. And my client was Goldman Sachs. So then I started getting more exposure to finance and I thought, huh, this is interesting. So this is, that's where it started. It was mainly my junior year. Gotcha. So what industries in finance have you worked in, such as, you know, investment banking, venture capital, private equity? Um, I well, I started out uh, auditing, and then I shifted to the ID space when I went to Credit Suisse and worked on, in London. Um, and my focus was residential mortgage-backed securities. So that was my first exposure to seeing the securitization spot um, um, area. Uh, and from there, I got more into IB when I went to West Africa, and I worked for an investment firm there, Serengeti Capital, and then. From that IB exposure, I wanted to get deeper, and then I got into PE, and I was working for Manocap, which was a, a VC fund backed on an LP in the UK looking to invest in opportunities in the West African region. So uh, specifically for Manocap, right, for private equity, equity did, your com- did your company specifically focus on investing and kind of analyzing startup companies or well-established companies already? Well-established. If you think of a, a private equity firm, uh, one of the things they look at is you got to have history. They look at historical data. I would say five years, but some might do less than five years. But you have to have uh, historical information to say this company is legit, it's credible. Uh, so we looked at established companies more in the mid-sized space, and our focus was financial services and industrials. Uh, what did you specifically do for uh, the, those companies? Did you just analyze the financial assets with the company and kind of see what companies so you a, want to invest in? I was, so with a, with, with a private equity firm, I would put them in like three major buckets uh, and there's probably more than three. So there's the um, sourcing, uh, structuring, and managing the deal. And, and the first part is sourcing, finding, okay, who can we invest in? So when I was in the West African region, we are just looking at opportunities within our vertical, let's say in specific industries, logistics. So then there's a whole part of going, and because it was a small firm, I played in all different parts. So in the sourcing part, we start exploring through our network and say, okay, which deal should we be looking at? Which companies are credible? 
So you build a pipeline and that's the sourcing element. And then once you go to the sourcing element, um, you go through the screening process where you start going to due diligence phases. So in that due diligence phases, this is where you meet with the team, you meet with the CEO, maybe the senior management team. You start asking for financial data to see how they perform and where they plan to go in the next couple of years. And then you start making decisions in terms of, okay, who do you want to, which deals you want to partner with. Then you go into the structuring of the deal. So the structuring of the deal part is where, let's say you find this one company, you like this company, you know, how are we going to structure this deal? Uh, how much, um, you know, what's the price point in which we're going to buy? And what are the conditions in which we're going to buy uh, this company, giving the risk, uh, giving all the risk associated and everything else with this deal. So that's the structuring part. Now, after you structure the deal and you close the deal, now you got to manage it. And with private equity, they, you, you hold on to these investments for a couple of years. So you have to work with their management team to make sure they're hitting certain targets. Uh, so they already, so when I joined, they already had companies in their portfolio. So there was a little bit of managing those portfolios, managing the performance on a periodic basis. And then there was the other element, sourcing new deals and structuring those deals. So I was playing um, on all three parts, sourcing, structuring, and managing uh, investments. So tell me if I'm wrong, but the whole idea of private equity, right, is you're trying to either make the company public based on basically all the advice you give them, all the money that you're providing in liquidity, but... Are you also, is it kind of the idea of you're trying to also get the company bought by another company or another service? Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, yeah. And I'll give it even broader than that. The main goal of a private equity firm or even VCA, anyone else, is to generate a certain amount of return for their investors. Uh, So that's the main goal of any investment firm is to say, okay, here's our objective. They go to the LPs. I'm not sure if you're familiar with an LP is. But an LP is all the investors that will invest in the fund. Uh, so, for instance, Logan, if you're an investor, you have money and you're an LP, I'll say, hey, you should invest in this fund because I can generate these types of return. Uh, and in terms of how I exit, it could be a variety of ways. You know, So the exit would be based on would I be able to get the returns that you as an LP is hoping for. And one of those routes, it's called trade sales, which is what you mentioned, sell it to another company. Uh, and that tends to be um, um, the, the the most common way private equity firms exit. And then the other option is IPO um, for you to exit. Uh, so those are the, usually the two key ways where you can exit from a deal is either through trade sale. Or the third part would be you sell it back to the owner. So some owners will say, hey, I'm in a situation. I don't have capital. I need this support. You have this network or you have this value prop that will help me be in a better place and I want to buy this company back within a couple of years. So those are the three types, management buyout, trade sale, or IPO. Gotcha. So that's that's awesome. So let's kind of get started with our discussion regarding you know capital markets and uh, the foundations of accounting. So now I know there are primary and secondary markets. Specifically, the main two common markets are the stock market and the bond market. Before we get yeah. into more depth with those two, could you tell us what is a capital market? <laughs> yeah, capital markets. Yeah, I remember when I joined or was in the capital market space. I asked myself that question. You know, what exactly is this? Um, it's it's just a market where you can exchange securities. And I'll explain what securities, what what exactly security is compared to, let's say, a contract. So, for instance, if and a perfect example would be uh, real estate. 
uh, or mortgage-backed securities so you can understand the difference between the capital markets and, um, and these other markets. So if I go, well, let's say for you, you want to go buy a house, you go to a bank, the bank gives you a loan. So the bank gives you the loan to buy the house. So that's an investment. So that's a loan contract where the bank has, and the back of that is the collateral. Now, in that contract that you have with the bank, you can't trade that. You can't go and say, oh, no, I'm sorry, they can't trade that. They can't go and say, we're going to sell this contract and give it to another bank. Like Citibank can't go and sell that loan to give to you to another bank. It's between you two. And that happens. And so the capital markets, what the capital markets create is a way for you to create these types of agreements and make it tradable, i.e. securities. So the capital markets is where you trade securities. And this is this is the whole process. If you think of mortgage-backed securities, um, a bank will take a bunch of mortgage-backed of, of loans and securitize them and then sell them into the capital markets. So that's the, I would say that's the key difference is the capital markets is you're able to trade securities. So the stock market, the bond market, those are all capital markets. Gotcha, gotcha. So obviously we're in shelter in place right now and COVID-19 has hurt the economy tremendously in the last few months, but it has recovered a lot in the last last few months. So I want to learn more about, you know, how the financial markets and how they have, how they recovered in the last few months from the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, do you mind kind of uh, explaining? That That is very interesting. And this goes back to the capital markets. So it's almost like a tale of two worlds. You know, I don't know. Do you trade? Uh, I do a little bit. I do that with my dad. Cause you do Robin Hood? Yeah, yeah. Of course. My favorite stock, <laughs> my favorite stock is probably Workday. Uh, that, that, that's a really good company. I feel like it's very undervalued. I feel like it's kind of the idea of, oh, it's going, it's, it's, it's a value, it's a value stock. I feel like it's investors overlook it, but it has such good assets and really good. It's a great CEO, great company that I feel like will bounce back very soon. So. And you've noticed over the period of time during COVID, the, the market has been going up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is the, 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 the two worlds that's, that's, and those are in finance. I say the old school folks like myself, those in finance that use these different types of methods to value companies. It's different than the new way of people, um, investors are valuing companies. So when I say the tale of two worlds is that COVID is happening. Unemployment has skyrocketed. Before COVID, it was about 3%, 3 to 4%. It's jumped four times. So unemployment is really, really high uh, now, right? So on the macro level, things aren't great. But within financial markets, things seem like everything is great, you know. So, so there's a disconnect between the two worlds. And from a finance person, you would think that the financial market should reflect what's happening in a macro economy. If they see these things that are happening, if unemployment is very high, that should be reflected in the market, in the financial market. And there are so many different reasons why that is, why the financial markets is doing well. There are some investors out there that are looking at this situation and see this. Uh, this is temporary. A vaccine is coming soon. We're pricing for the future. We notice the little noise now is not going to have a long-term impact. Um, so that's one of the reasons why the financial markets are doing really good. So you have that reason, right? Then the second reason you have in the, uh, why the financial market is, is, is doing well is that this unemployment they see, they, they see this as um, 
uh, temporary unemployment, that these employees are just furloughed, meaning that they haven't been really fired, so they can come back when things get better. Um, and as a result of that, they look at the unemployment number and say, well, we can't really believe that. Let's look more into details. We think that these employees will hire them back. Therefore, we think things are really good. So that's the second reason. The third reason is much broader. It's the interest rate reason and the relationship between interest rates and the stock market. Um, and from a very high level, uh, interest rates or uh, the risk-free rate or any other, you know, those rates are definitely used as a way to value companies if you're using methods like the discounting cash flow method. And I probably don't shouldn't go too much detail into how that works, but essentially the way valuation works, um, there's so many different ways, but if I, we talk specifically about discounting cash flows, the lower your interest rate, the higher the value the company. So if you put interest rate into your valuation model and interest rates are very low, naturally your valuation will pop out a result as high if you're just using a discounting cash flow. Uh, and if you're, if, you're, if you're keeping credit risk, you know, um, um, the risk premium the same and you don't increase the risk premium given what's happening and your interest rates are just naturally low, your valuation is going to be higher. So you have that. Uh, and the fourth one, which is the last one, is you have a lot of retail investors that may, that the tools that they're using to predict if this company should be valued where it is may not be the tool, you know, are not usually tra the traditional tools to use. Uh, there's this whole debate, there's this whole conversation about um, uh, fundamental analysis versus technical analysis. I'm not sure if you, you know, have you heard of that fundamental versus technical? No, I have not. So fundamental analysis is essentially you look at, and, and you know, there are folks who, there's hardcore investors that take these very unique different approaches. So the fundamental analysis uh, analysts will say, let's look at the company numbers, let's drill through the data, let's go talk to management, let's go through all these due diligence process, kind of like what a private equity would do in investment banking. Let's go through all these different processes that come up with the market value, the intrinsic value of this company. And then it'll come up with a valuation. You know, so you have that. But then you have this technical analysis and say, why are we doing all this analysis? That shouldn't matter. What matters is what everyone else is doing. You know, let's base it on um, one day, say, let's look at the beta. And this is where it talks about capital asset pricing model called CAPM. But they say, no, let's not look at all these details. We don't need to look at that. Let's just see how stock market, the stock prices move. And based on the way it moves, it's a signal or indicator of how investors behave. So it's almost like a, a um, it takes a more of a behavioral finance approach and mm -hmm. saying that you don't need to go through the data of this company. Look at Tesla. If you go through the data of Tesla, Tesla should be valued anywhere close to where it is. But if everyone believes Tesla should be valued this way, then you should use different set of tools to, 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 to value Tesla. Um, so these are the things that I see that are happening, this fundamental value versus technical analysis to determine what a value. I mean, I have buddies who will, the way they talk about, uh, I give an example, Zoom. So Zoom could be overvalued. You know, it could be overpriced. But the way they look at it, they would say, well, the company is a great company. It clearly is a great company. And they'll look at historical 
information to kind of predict and say, okay, this company is great. They won't use specific data points to determine if this company worth the value it is. Or if you are an investor buying in, is there any more value you can gain from that? Have all that value been taken out and you have to wait a much longer time to be able to realize that value? You know, so it's just a different set of tools that people are using now. Gotcha. Sorry, okay. that was a very long yeah. answer. Yeah. Uh, no worries. Uh, so I just wanted to clarify, when you meant charts, you know, when you're analyzing a company like Tesla or Amazon and you meant they were going up and down, do you, in the beta, do you mean kind of the idea of volatility? Yes. Yes. So this is standard deviation. You might have gone through standard deviation in mm-hmm. high school. Um, so this is the risk, right? So the, the risk and return profile. Um, and the way capital works or the beta works is this idea that let's look at this stock in relative to how the whole market moves. And let's track that volatility. And that's how we come up with a beta. And then with that beta, you can come up with um, what the company should be valued at using the capital, the capital asset pricing model. That's one of the key things you learn when you take core finance and it even talks about it in, in, in um, uh, corporate finance. But it says that don't look at financial data, don't look, don't need to be looking at management, don't look at all these other information. Just look at how this stock behaves to the market. And based on that, we should be able to come up with what a price should be for that stock. So you can so kind of you can kind of identify whether a stock is you know exceeding expectations just by. Could you also look at you know the S and P five hundred or the Dow Jones and kind of compare it because it's an index, correct? Correct. It's a financial index, so you can kind of compare you know Dow Jones to the company you're analyzing or saying, oh, what should I invest in? You could kind of do that in order to analyze if that's a good investment for you. No, that's that's great. No, that's that's one of the uh, first steps or one of the things you should be doing. You should look at, and when you look at it, what you're looking at from the company perspective, you're looking at internal and external factors. So the broader thing where you're looking at is say, let's look at the industry at a whole, and let's look at the macro factors. So the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones, these are macro factors that kind of tells you the mood of how things are going. You know, So if there's some broader issues that's happening with the economy, let's say when COVID has happened, correlation goes to one. Everything gets impacted regardless of how the company behaves. What's missing in that assessment and that analysis is the company level. So one of the key things that allows a company to perform and do well is their the people. So if you don't have insights to the people or if there's a key person that's going to be leaving and you're not aware of that, and, and those types of information, you won't be able to catch in technical analysis. And those types of surprises can have an impact. Uh, in addition to that, if... You are like if you're looking at numbers in terms of a uh, Tesla would be a perfect example, and you back into their valuation and to how many you know their production volume, and for them to get to that valuation, if you start going down into the details, you realize that it's going to take a lot. It's a very bullish. You, you'll be very extremely bullish that they will be able to capture that kind of market share in a short period of time for you to generate. Anytime you have an investment, there's a time horizon to that. Uh, so, um, so, so yes, that's, I, I like your approach and I think that's one of the ways you should look at when you're analyzing value companies. Um, but then there's all these other things that you should also look at when you're making certain types of investments. If you're training, that's a whole different beast. Uh, if you do a long-term investment, you should go through all these different processes. I do, I do know that there's, you know, some other ways you can analyze a, a specific stock, right? You could also look at the PE ratio and the, uh, there you go. the price uh, per share. But uh, kind of jumping topics to the bond market, right? Could you 
kind of explain how you know the U.S. government kind of had a had a toll on the the bond market, especially from the stimulus package they uh, implemented. So, could you kind of talk about you know the whole idea of how the bond market is now doing so much better than a few, a few months ago? Uh, yeah. Um, the thing is, I yeah, they were hurt. I don't know. If, I think. That's the thing that's confusing. I, I probably, I, I wouldn't say I have a uh, definitive answer on that, but I remember that during that time period, everyone thought the bond markets was, you know, they were bleeding and atrophy. And the amount that the Fed said they were willing to support, they didn't need as much. I don't even think it was anywhere close as much to, but the signal that the Fed put out saying that, you know, we're going to support you regardless and we're going to put out trillions of dollars when it was, you know, uh, you know, several billion dollars that they, you know, supported uh, in, in that space. Now, the bond market is tricky because there's so many different parts of the bond market, right? So you have the treasury, you know, you have treasury bonds. Um, you also have mortgage bonds. Um, you have auto bonds. So there's so many different pieces of the bond market. There's corporate bonds, which is the, the things that you would probably want to look at uh, more closely. Now, when... The feds came in. I'm trying to see. I, I don't want to um, uh, murder the, the sequence of events, but when the feds came in, the Fed says, uh, we don't want to create an environment where once things start spiraling, things just get, everything just, everyone becomes scared, no one wants to lend, then the whole liquidity market freezes up. And when the liquidity market freezes up, that's when credit risk goes extremely high. And that's when the risk premium goes extremely high. And if that would have happened, then you would have, I, I, I would have been 100% sure that the, um, the Dow Jones and the S&P would have dropped significantly more than it did because of the Fed intervention. It kind of slowed that, that down, down a bit. And a, a perfect example would be the Lehman crisis in 2008. So during that approach, the Fed took approach to saying, you know what, someone's got to fail. You know, these actors, they behave badly they were structuring these mortgage-backed securities even though the default rates were higher than when they said it were. Um, so someone has to fail. And when the feds did that, and when Lehman went under, when everyone thought there's no way Lehman could go under, I mean, even, I was in London during that time, and I remember we had credit default swaps uh, against Lehman, and I remember the trader, I was arguing with the trader, and the trader was saying that it's Lehman, they're not going to go under. Uh, no one thought they would go under. But when they actually went under, that changes everything. It's kind of like during this time period when the NBA decided we're going to cancel all games for the uh, season eight changes. And when that happens, the liquidity market freezes up and it impacts even businesses that are low risk. So the, when the feds came in, um, they helped by saying that if you need funding, we have this facility uh, to help you with the funding. And that's how they help the bond market. At the same time, rates are extremely low because of the feds. And honestly, from my perspective, I think we're going to go to a negative interest rate just because of if you look at the deficit, the U.S. deficit, uh, it's pretty high. It seems like it's going one way. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a cost of financing on that. Uh, so if you start increasing your interest rate on that, then, you know, you're going to hurt the U.S. economy. So I think naturally that's going to go down. Um, I hopefully I answered your question. I think I was kind of yeah, a little bit yeah. Older. Actually, just to like you know clarify everything and help our audience, can you kind of explain what a bond is? Oh, good point. Yes, 
what bond is a security? Uh, and the example I gave you before is a perfect example of a bond. So the beauty of the bond, so if we think of a loan contract, let's say the mortgage. I, I walk through the process of the mortgage, right? You go, you get money, you know, or see bank invest in Logan, so Logan could buy a mortgage, could buy a house. City, that's like a loan contract. The city can trade that. So a city, so the way you will trade that is make it a security. And when you make it a security, then it becomes more attractive because if I'm a bondholder, if I have that investment, I can trade it to someone else. I don't have to hold on to it. Um, and if you think from a society standpoint, um, if from a financial markets, the purpose of financial markets or a bank or a commercial bank or any of these institutions is to connect borrowers and savers. Those who have capital that may not necessarily know how to make it productive to give to those who need capital to make it more productive. And that drives, that's supposed to drive economic development. And one of the tools that you can use is bonds. So if I have a bond compared to a loan contract, if I'm sitting, if I get a loan contract, I'm stuck with you and you might default. So there's a lot of risk. So I, and I have to hold on to this up to the point of maturity. So a mortgage is like 30 years. To make a mortgage more attractive to a broader market, i.e. to get more people with capital to invest in the real estate market, is to create a bond structure where I can buy it and I can trade it. Even if it's a 30-year mortgage, I can sell it the next day to someone else. So a bond is essentially a security that allows you to um, trade at any given time when you when you hold it. That's, that's the biggest difference in a bond. Gotcha. So kind of jumping topics to, you know, capital market efficiency, could you uh, briefly talk about what is the main difference between a bear market and a bull market? That's a good point. Um, in financial, in finance, they use bear bull as a way of talk about the state of how the market is. So if the market is up, the market is doing well, uh, then it's bullish. Things, you know, urban investor is bullish. Investor believes that, uh, you know, almost gleefully optimistic that things are going to do well from now and into the future. So if you think of their investors now during COVID-19 and the market, they're pretty bullish. You know, they're pretty bullish. Giving the macro data, they're very bullish that things are going to get better. Um, Tesla and these companies are going to do well. Um, and so that's the bull mentality. The bull mentality is just very optimistic regardless of what the data says. Um, and then the bear, the bear is someone that's more pragmatic, or probably overly pragmatic, pragmatic, um, very careful, always look at the downside first, then the upside, even though the upside might be doing well, they always look at the downside risk. Uh, a perfect example, and I hate to be political, but um, uh, just, to, and I'll give you a couple of different examples, so it's not too political. So you'll see Dr. Fossey. You familiar with Dr. Fossey, who he is? No, I am not. Okay, so maybe your audience, then I guess your audience won't know either. So when the COVID came, Dr. Fauci is the guy everyone's listened to about, uh, are things going to get better? And he's very downside risk. So when he talks, he just talks about, yeah, things are going to better, but things are, are pretty bad. And then you have someone like Trump who's very um, bullish and saying, no, we need to move things forward. We need to open the economy. Things need to get better. Um, so he's very bullish and he might be ignoring the data of all the bad things. And Dr. Falsi is very bearish and he might be ignoring the data of all the good things. So this is the bull and bear mentality. Now, the way I see it with market games in a company and within life and different types of personalities, you just have these two extreme. Um, and I'm not saying these two, Dr. Falsi and Trump, are too extreme in bear and bull, but 
you have these bare bull, specifically these personalities where if it's a, uh, you have this mentality that if you start a company, it's going to do well, forget about the risk, things are going to go well. So you're very bullish. And then you have other individuals who just think that things might not do well, things are going to go bad. You know, the sky is falling, the chicken little, right? Um, so this is the bear and bull personality. Uh, this is the difference between a bear and a bull market. A bear market, things are just COVID-19 times when the market went from like, when I think Dow went all the way down to 18,000 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, now it's up to 27,000. But when it was going down to 18,000, we were all bearish. And now it was going up and the bulls are coming up and it's getting better and better and better. Gotcha. So uh, I was a little confused with, the idea of what is an efficient market, right? Could, so could you kind of explain the, the idea of what is market efficiency? Like, what is it? Uh, market, this market efficiency is this thing that probably more so in theory than it is in practice. There's no way you can see it in practice. Um, and I will explain it from your side since you're an investor and anyone who's listening who wants to be in, you know, wants to uh, invest. There's this whole idea that there is a, there's a way for you to find an investment, an efficient investment, meaning that the return and the risk will give you the most optimal performance. So risk-adjusted performance. And a lot of wealth management, they all have these um, systems that they use to, um, to be able to determine, you know, what's the optimal level, what's the optimal performance. The problem with that, you can't really see it. And the way it looks, uh, I wish, you know, we had a, this was like a video they can see, I will show you like the graph, how that looks like. But if you think of a YX um, graph, uh, you know, a two by two, you know, uh, you're familiar with that, right? Okay, cool. So I don't have to go into details how that looks. Uh, there's return and then there's risk. You know, I can always forget if the, return, the risk is at the bottom or the return is at the top. I would say the return is vertical and the risk is um, uh, horizontal. And in that graph, it's, it's almost like a, a curved slope that goes up and then it just, it does, you know, there's a law of diminishing return. And the idea of that is that when you look at an investment, you do these calculations and assess what the risk will be. And you do a calculation what the returns would be. And then you come up with a risk adjusted return and there's this optimal level where they hit that efficient frontier this line then therefore that's an efficient portfolio it is a a, a, a mix of investment so you put it so the way the, the software will work you take your list of investments you put it in the software it calculates and it runs and it'll tell you where it fits in terms of that whole weighted that, that weighted portfolio and it will tell you here's the risk adjusted and this will be the most optimal portfolio you should have so I think this is a tool that uh, I believe all wealth management have somewhat of this tool that they use. And I know that like Wealthfront and, you know, these newer stage types of robo investments, they use somewhat similar to those tools. But then no one, no one can actually know where that is. Like if you actually plot, for instance, you can do this by plotting. Um, the efficient portfolio will always be the market portfolio, right? So the market portfolio in our scenario, let's say it's S&P 500. If we plot the S&P 500 over different um, time, time zone, and then we start plotting different specific individual companies, you'll never get a situation where it's actually on that portfolio, where your portfolio matches the market portfolio. 
what you have is sometimes your portfolio will outperform the market and your portfolio will, um, will not outperform the market. And this is this broader argument where they say, why are you playing and investing in individual stocks? Just invest in the index. The index is the efficient portfolio. You're wasting your time because you will never be the market. And that's the whole that's the whole conversation about the efficient portfolio uh, or the capital market efficiency. So, right. Uh, so is a truly efficient market, right? It, it kind of eliminates the possibility of beating the market, correct? Kind of. Because exactly. Any, you can't beat the market. And if yeah. you do, it's temporary. Because like any information, right, available to any trader or any investor is already incorporated into the market price. Is that correct? And that's the flaw. And that's the flaw in the argument. Because information, the way we get information are so many different stages. For I'll give you a perfect example. If you work at Google, you know more, if you work there, you have more information than you or your eye, right? I, I, I wouldn't know, right? So there are people at Google, I'm not saying just Google, I'm saying any company that is, that's public, are sharing that information to individuals and individuals are acting on that information and shifting how the market will work. And by the time it gets a retail investor, it's, you know, it's, there's so many layers. And then there's other situations where those who are actually doing the trade. So there's, there are reasons other than market reasons why the market moves. And an example would be, let's say for a trading firm, this person on the trading desk say, will, will have a mandate that they can't, um, the risk level can't be um, higher than this. If the risk level gets higher than this, they need to exit out all their investment. And that decision is a policy decision. It has nothing to do with market movements. So they're 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 exiting or they're limiting the amount of trading they're doing, not because of market forces, but just because of policies within the companies. And every single company have these policies. And because of all these different uh, regulatory, not regu- well, regulatory within a company, policy reasons and information. There's no um, uh, uh, symmetry of information. Information is always asymmetric. Um, you would never have a situation, or it's unlikely to have a situation where you have an efficient frontier. You you know you'll be hitting the market because some people just know more than others. Gotcha. So now I kind of want to talk and learn about you know a little bit of the foundations of accounting. So I kind of want to learn oh, about you know, the financial statements and how you kind of analyze that in companies and all that. Just so I guess kind of what is the primary task of an accountant really in a company? I am going to make it so poetic to make sure accounting are not looked at the way they are. You know, <laughs> um, accountants, I would say that at a very basic level, their task is to account. And, I, and I'll explain in more details. If you are a company, you're going to be going and your company is doing well. Let's say even a restaurant, you're going to have so many different transactions that's going through your accounting system or some system to transact every time you spend money. And that would be buying your supplies for your restaurant, um, paying for the waiter, um, buying, you know, buying other supplies, uh, uh, and, you know, revenues coming in for every time a, 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 a patron comes into your restaurant. So there's all these different transactions that happen throughout the day, that happens throughout the month. And if you are a CEO, you're running a company, you don't have time to try to sift through what all that information means. So what accountant does, accountants is able to see that information very clearly and compartmentalize and summarize that information to provide more meaningful information for the manager and allows that manager to make better decision-making in terms of 
where they should be spending their money. Um, and I think that's what accounting does. It just it clarifies, it crystallizes that, you know, all that data, think of like, uh, 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 you know, some kind of data analytics system. It takes all the data, cleans it up, and provides meaningful information in the form of financial statements, such as like the income statement, uh, the balance sheet, and the cash flows, so that a manager and even investors can look at it from a very high level and have a good understanding of what this company is doing. Gotcha. So kind of going back to a little bit more about you, can you can you kind of tell us the background story of how did you uh, become an accounting teacher? I mean, accounting a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Oh, that's yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, that wasn't that wasn't actually the plan. That happened um, because of the startup. And I, I'll explain why. I, I was in the 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 executive MBA program at Berkeley Haas, and this is where I saw I saw issues with. Or I just saw there was a disconnect in terms of how uh, we were learning content, especially finance. I think it was a finance course. And in that class, you had mid to senior level, C-level folks in that class. And you had a professor who knew so much about finance. But as he was lecturing, a lot of folks, they, they just couldn't get it. They didn't get it. And I thought it was fascinating. To me, I got it because I knew it already. But I thought it was fascinating. So then I started looking more into it. And I realized that no one was looking and reading the textbook. And this is where I started the whole market game. So I saw this is a textbook problem. When you get into a classroom, there should be a certain level of knowledge you should have so that you can engage with a professor and start having more higher order thinking discussions. Um, so then I started going, I started saying, hey, we need to build these tools. I looked at gamification. I thought games were, uh, I saw things in games that can be used to make it more engaging to get, you know, um, get more adoption. More simple, right? Kind of the idea of you're trying to make it simple, right? Not to make it exactly. complex. Uh, simple and more engaging. Like if you look, if you look at finance, not even the, the the complexity of finance, but the way the textbook is written is dry. It's not dynamic. It's static. And finance is more interesting. So creating storytelling and all these other elements that drives uh, people into games and engaging because games can be complex, you know, as well. Uh, but it's the engagement factor. So I started talking to all the different professors on campus. I talked to the program, and then I connected with the chairperson, uh, Professor XJ, accounting department. He was also my accounting professor in the program. He said, you know, you want to build these tools. Why don't you teach? Uh, if you teach, you'll learn how this works. And that's how I got into becoming an accounting professor. Uh, he, I mean, my background was uh, I've done, I went undergrad for accounting. I have uh, relevant accounting experience. And, um, you know, I knew, the, I knew the content very well. So, um, so because of my relationship with Berkeley Haas, they say, why don't you also teach? And that's how I got to become an accounting professor. That's awesome. That's a great story. Uh, so going back to a little bit about, you know, accounting, uh, do you mind differentiating uh, between auditing and accounting, kind of the difference between those two? I would say they are the same. And accounting, accounting and auditing, accounting is can be an auditor, um, and an auditor is an accountant. Um, but the different roles, like you think about career pathway, there's the auditing pathway, and that's where you just investigate numbers that's already been created. Then you have those who actually work. For, so then you ask for those who actually work for a company. And an example I give you with Goldman Sachs. So Goldman Sachs is my client, and I would interact with their accountants. Um, their financial accounts. So they will go and 
do evaluation on their securitization uh, products. And they would say, well, here's how, here's the model that we use. This is the data we use to value the company. This is where we see this, these assets should be valued. As an auditor, you come in and you validate and verify. So you essentially just replicating the work and you're making sure that they're following the um, uh, accounting rules uh, and finance rules in terms of how they're valuing this. So I'll say that's the biggest difference. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got out of public accounting and, and, and got into more into the details uh, because in public accounting, you're just doing the work over. It's not creating, someone's already created and you're just reviewing and evaluating and validating. Gotcha. So I would say that would be the biggest difference. Got it. So, oh, I, I, I know we were talking a little bit briefly uh, uh, a few minutes ago about, you know, balance sheets and uh, cash flow statements. Uh, do you mind telling us what is a balance sheet and its importance in the overall finance industry? Yeah. Oh, uh, balance sheet. There's a whole thing just to talk about the balance sheet. The balance sheet equation, it's the balance sheet is essentially any assets you own minus any obligation. And the net of that is your net equity. And the best example to use with that is a mortgage. You go buy a house, let's say this house is worth a million dollars, and you buy this million dollar house, but you borrow the money. You borrow some of it. So you go and borrow 80% of the value of the house. So you got an $800,000 loan. So on your balance sheet, you'll have an asset of $1 million, but you have a loan of $800,000, and then you have equity of $200,000. So a balance sheet is just your state of position of your assets minus your liabilities. And the main purpose of the balance sheet is to show what your, what your true equity is. So just because you have a million dollar house, and you have that asset, your equity is really 200000 So can a, a balance sheet, obviously, it can it can tell if a business is doing well, correct? There's, yes, but if you are an investor or analyst, that's, that's, that won't be the place you look at first. Um, and, and maybe I'll explain all three, but it's probably best if I explain all three to show you so you can see the difference between one and the other. The balance sheet just tells you a place in time. So one of the things you can use from the balance sheet is to see how much risk this company has, meaning that you can look at their assets and their debt, or you can do a debt-to-equity ratio and say, this company has a lot of leverage. So you can use it to assess the level of risk. Um, you can also see how much cash they have, given the level of risk. Um, you can see their accounts receivable. You can see various pieces of the assets. If you were to invest in this company, what you want to look at is not uh, a position in time. You will look at the income statement. So many times you will hear earnings forecast uh, is a tool that analysts use a lot to determine what the value. You also mentioned price to earnings ratio. All that comes from the income statement. So the income statement is a tool that shows you how many sales you had. You know, how many customers paid you for your services or for your product and how much profit you generated given all the costs you uh, incurred. And they look at that to say, well, if this is your profit, we expect this to profit to continuously happen every year or even grow. So they look at that as an assessment to do all kinds of valuation calculations, such as your price to sales, your price to earnings. These are called multiples, income multiples, or 
your cash flow analysis, such as discounting cash flow approach. That's your income statement. The problem with the income statement, you can look at that by itself, is that the income statement has these things called accruals. I don't know if you're familiar with accruals, um, but it is, for instance, if I sell you a car, but you don't pay me right away, you pay me, let's say, three months from now. Let's say I sell you a car in December, but you're still going to pay me next year in January. I can record that revenue in December because there's all these rules saying that if this sales looks legit, you're likely to pay, I should record that revenue. So it reflects not necessarily cash activity, it reflects what you expect to receive in cash. Um, and investors want to see that. They want to see the full potential. However, it might be it might disguise things like what if this is a fake trade? You never get that cash. So you want to look at the cash flow statement also. And this is the value in the cash flow statement. In the cash flow statement, it tells you exactly the cash flow you use from operating your business, i.e. your day-to-day, your cash flow you use from investing. This is mainly if you're buying like fixed assets, let's say you have a machine and produce stuff, um, or if you're using some of your money to invest into the market. And then financing, you know, where is your money coming from? Is it coming from equity investors like private equity, VCs, your family? Or are you borrowing money? Is that coming from your bank, family, things like that? Uh, So all these different statements have a, they do have a purpose. But I would say that if you look at the top three statements, a lot of analysts, the first thing they look at is the earnings forecast. And that's the thing that they talk about constantly. Um, so you want to look at the earnings forecast, but then you also want to look at the cash flows to see how they're managing their cash. But then you want to look at the balance sheet just to see the, you look at that just to see where are they in terms of the amount of equity they have and in terms of the amount of, of risks they have in their books. Essentially, you know, the this assets that they have, is it mostly debt? Are they highly leveraged? And that's how they tend to use the balance sheet. So, right, a balance sheet kind of holds, you know, the, key performance indicators, correct? Kind of like ratios between numbers. Is that is that kind of the idea of a balance sheet too? Yeah, yeah you can use balance sheet for ratios number. And I'll give you an example. Uh, the One of the great ratio numbers to use is if you think of a, the numerator and denominator, income statement, numerator, denominator, balance sheet to see how you're doing. So if your balance sheet is your position at a certain point in time, you want to know, well, how well did I do after I raise this money? This I raise this equity. What's my return on equity? And the, and the numerator would be your profits, your income statement. Uh, so when you look at ratios, uh, you do uh, for performance ratios, it's always going to be some income statement number that's going to be tied to it. And then you might have some balance sheet numbers. So performance ratios, you're going to have mainly, you're going to have some just income statement total, like margins, gross margins, profit margins. That's income statement numerator, income statement in the denominator. If you have situations where you're like a return on equity, return on investment, that's income statement and remunerator, balance sheet, uh, denominator. Beyond performance ratios, there's this liquidity ratios. And liquidity ratios, this is where you're going to use, you could just, it could be all balance sheet data, such as debt to equity, to get an idea of what your liquidity ratios are. And then other type of ratios, there's efficiency ratio. How efficient are you using your capital? Uh, so those are the three categories of ratio, performance or profitability. Sorry, not performance, profitability, uh, liquidity, and efficiency ratios, common types. Gotcha. So 
I, I we we did talk a little bit about cash flow statement, but could you kind of explain what a cash flow statement is and kind of you know its significance when you're analyzing a company's financial statement, seeing whether or not it's a good investment? Yeah, yeah, and the the, the types of investors that tend to look at cash flow statements, I would say, commercial banks. And the reason why commercial banks look at their cash flow statements is that they take lower risk. Commercial bank, they don't want to take a lot of risk. They go to the CAD, they, they will analyze and you know uh, evaluate your cash flow statement in details. And that's one of the reasons why you have venture capital. Because if you're starting a company, you won't have much cash flows. You know, you're going to be in a hole for the most part. So you're more risky. Uh, but uh, investors look at cash flows. And another point, another time where a lot of investors look at cash flows, even VCs and private equity, is during the down market. During the down market, people are more protected with their capital and how they deploy it. And what they want to look at is how a company is managing their cash flows. And it's usually in three sections. It's the cash flow from operations, i.e., how are you generating revenues and the cost of to, 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 to generate those revenues. Uh, investing activities, you know, what are the long-term assets that you're investing in, kind of like plant machinery and things like that. Um, and then how are you financing your business? Uh, those are the three different categories. So during the down market, I'm pretty sure a lot of investors are scrutinizing cash flow statements. Um, in commercial banks, they will always do that. For during a great market, VCs and private equity, they're going to scrutinize the income statement. They're going to scrutinize not your current income statement or your historical income statement, but your projected income statement. What's your projected revenues and earnings are going to be over a um, period of time? Um, so, so, um, yeah, so the cash flow statement is uh, it's it's very important for certain types of investors more so than others. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, and then before we kind of, I I, I kind of want to learn more about market games. So before we kind of end our uh, episode, our kind of podcast, uh, could you kind of explain what is market games and what is what is your goal? What is your goal for market games? What do you want to accomplish? Oh, those so so heavy, Logan. It's heavy questions. Jeez, how do I answer? What do I want to accomplish with market games? My broader accomplishment is that I I want to make an impact. Um, I, I want to be able to say that I built something that changed the way we learn. Um, and of course, one of the things I'm focused on is business education. I think I'm at a point in my life. It, I'm at a point in my life where. The things I want to do, of course, is always going to be for profit, but it also will provide a social good. And I think what drove what drives that is for my time at Credit Suisse in London and doing mortgage backed securities and seeing how the market crashed and the impact it had on so many. And I think that drove me to say I want to do something more impactful. And that took me to West Africa to make more of an impact. And during that time period, this is where like we were helping small companies raise one, you know, small to mid-sized company raise one million to twenty million in capital from the international markets. So that was fulfilling. You know, I had to come back to the U.S. for uh, personal reasons. So now I'm at a point, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I make an impact? Well, I look at what skill sets do I have. I have a good understanding. From my experience, I have a good understanding of building these types of tools. So I would love for schools or higher education move away from textbook or change the way business education is taught and not use textbook and use these types of gamified tools and um, and essentially just help the learning process 
So I'll say that would be the biggest thing, increasing student success or helping educators increase student success. Um, and, um, and so that's the, that's the big goal. And what Market Games is, is like we're building these tools that help students build critical thinking, communication, collaboration skills. So our first product, it's called Intro to Business. And the reason we built that, we built that specifically for Intro to Business courses in higher ed. And we think that if you're coming into higher ed or if you just want to get introduced to business, one of the key things employers are saying that students should have is to be able to think critically and to be able to communicate and collaborate effectively. Because when you get into the marketplace, you're going to be working in teams. It's not a silo project, you know, uh, you know, a silo project. You're going to work in teams. And you're going to have to have critical thinking skills because the robots are coming. Um, and a lot of educators use this thing called the Bloom's Taxonomy is a pyramid and at the very bottom of the pyramid i suggest you should check it out and look at the blues taxonomy because that's what all educators are using to try to build um, um curriculum at the very bottom of the current uh, of of the pyramid is called understanding uh memory have, have you do you do you watch westworld have you ever seen westworld uh i have not okay so fine good i'm, I'm not recommending you or any high school student watch westworld i'm just gonna put that out there but, but it's about a pyramid of learning. And at the very bottom of the pyramid of learning, it's just vote memorization, understanding memory. And then as you go up the pyramid, it goes into applying, uh, understanding, applying, creating. These higher order thinking skills are the skills that robots can replicate. And these are the skills that are in demand by employers. So this intro to business games create this game where you play in a team and you have to make decisions in uncertain market scenarios. And you're working with each other where there's no right answer. You know, this is not, you're solving problems with no right answer. This is not like any exam. And you have to work with your teammates to figure out what's the optimal decisions given the data that you're given. And it's a struggle. And they're getting used to this experience because that's the experience you're going to get when you get into the marketplace. You're going to be always solving problems with no right answer. You're not going to go to a book. There's no solution because there's so many different variables and moving pieces, internal and external factors that will... Uh, determine if you survive or fail. You know, you know, it's you know, when you are when you ask an entrepreneur, any person who has a business, is it success or skill? I mean, is it skill or luck? Luck. And that's how business is. So anyway, this game allows students to condition themselves to get used to solving problems in uncertain scenarios uh, and make them more attractive to employers because then it can use that data and put that on their resume and say, hey, I have these set of skills. Uh, and then for the professor who teaches these courses, uh, they have, and these courses are like 500 up to 1200 students in a class. You know, as they interact, we're able to see performance and engagement data to help the professor get a better understanding of what the students know and what they don't know and adjust their curriculum. So it's a whole different learning experience than a textbook. And we are giving a certain set of sets of tools that helps not only just the student, but also um, the professor. And this is just the first game. We're, you're going to start seeing stuff in accounting. We have some stuff in accounting coming in a couple of months. And then, of course, finance. Gotcha. Uh, I did hear that you actually, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say sold, but kind of your curriculum is at UC Berkeley and the University of Miami. Is that correct? Uh, you're, you're speaking. Who told you that, first of all? Um, Sabrina. No. Uh, um, Yes, we're going to be working. I, I don't want to put the schools that we're going to be working with this fall, but we're going to be working with a few other schools um, um, uh, beyond just Berkeley. Um, so um, some of these schools, 
Some schools are going to be in Ohio. Some schools is going to be Ohio, Utah, uh, Pennsylvania, and then there's a few others that's going to be coming in this spring. So we are expanding beyond Berkeley. We're going to be working with other schools, and like we're bringing this whole new fun way of learning. And if you follow us on our uh, uh, Instagram page, our Instagram, you know, our handle is I, I'm new to Instagram by the way. So our handle is the Market Games. You'll start learning more about how we're building a community of students and professors. And we'll start adding more business education content so that, you know, even if you're not a business major, you're getting exposed to this rich learning because no matter what you do when you come out of school, you're going to be working in some organization. So you're going to have you're going to need these very basic set of business skills. Oh, so I was kind of wondering, do you guys have an entrepreneurship uh, kind of curriculum kind of class where you kind of develop a uh, minimum viable product and then you propose all these uh, customer value propositions and like why why is your product or why is your service amazing and why is it better than everyone else's or compared to other relative uh, companies that are similar to yours do you kind of have a, a game that's very similar to that of a startup company and then you know I guess we talked we talked a little bit about private equity right and then maybe selling your company have you thought of that yet uh, wait I just want to make sure I fully understand one, you're asking stuff about product development and product features. And then the other, is this part of the product features or is oh, this I was about, talking about building your you, company to sell? I was talking about if you kind of like developed a, a game yet of entrepreneurship, starting your own business, promoting it, creating it, and then pretty much like everything, pretty much with starting a business. Yeah, you know, I, I've always thought about that. Um, there's the professor who teaches the intro entrepreneurship class uh, UC Berkeley wants me to build something like that. I'm pretty sure that I have some interest. The way I we go through the product development process, we have to think what makes the most sense to learn that particular type of area. When I think of entrepreneurship, it's so much about discovery and creativity that when you try to simulate that, you limit the possibilities. Or if you try to simulate the possibilities, you're going to be building for a long period of time. Um, one of the tools that, I mean, if we keep on getting demand for something like this, there'll be a softer version than what you will experience if you actually have to go. Because there's some programs out there. If you're in the class, you actually have to go and create and go into the market and actually talk to customers and potential customers, which I think is probably the best way of learning more so than anything else. You know, our tools provide a way so that if a, a, a convenience, like if you have a class and you're trying to manage 600, 800 students, it's hard to kind of do those types of things. I think the best way to learn entrepreneurship is exactly find a company, go talk to investors, go talk to companies, and really learn from the market. Um, uh, but if we if we keep on getting interest in building some tool, just to get a broad sense of what, you know, so you can fail on a tool that so you don't fail in the real world, um, there's ways. You can extend this actual product, this intro to business product, to go into more uh, creative side where you, you know, you go into the ideation process and from the ideation process, you go into the product process. Um, um, so there's ways to do that. There's ways to do that, but that's not something uh, I would say that it's not a priority unless our customers start saying that make this your priority. Gotcha. Well, Torso, it was an amazing, it was amazing talking to you. I, I really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, I want to thank you again, for joining the podcast. It was a pleasure. No problem. Can I give one plug um, uh, to your audience? Mm-hmm. That's okay. We're doing a, um, as you may not know, we're doing a, a, a high school boot camp 
coming up. I think this is on August 21st. Uh, and there's ways for you to sign up for that. And in that boot camp, we are going to be covering financial literacy, understanding financial statements, and students get to play the game. And we're working with a couple of high schools to do that. So if that is something that anyone is interested in to sign up, we're looking to do signups up to next Friday. Um, but it should be a fun learning experience that they play over the weekend and you get put in teams and you get to experience the game. So the the link is is bit bit.ly, that's our bit.ly slash mg underscore bootcamp. And you'll find more information there. Thanks again for tuning in. Hopefully you guys learned something new from this episode. Take care and stay safe.